imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Yeah. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. When that day comes and I find myself standing in the sun, I can only imagine. What I will do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine, yeah. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory. What will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Able to speak it all? Imagine. I can only imagine, can only imagine, yeah, I can only imagine, can only imagine, I can only imagine. I can only imagine when all I will do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine.
Again, I want to say welcome and thank you so much for joining us and, and worshiping with us today. So as you're going to Luke chapter 9 and we continue this series on follow me, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? By show of hands this morning, how many of you read the fine print of the user agreement for like your phones, your computers, or Microsoft Office and stuff, before clicking, I agree. Okay, so one person out of two services read the fine print. Did you know that by clicking, I agree, whether you read it or not, you are in a sense entering into a legally binding contract? You see... We, we kid ourselves, we're like, well, it's not that big of a deal because I did it last time and, and nothing happened, so I'll just click it again. It's also part of the reason that uh, last year when people were getting so upset with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook about you know, how they were uh, using all the information on Facebook and creating profiles of people and targeting ads and all of that, you know, people were really upset. But when he gets hauled before Congress, guess what they could do? Nothing. You want to know why? Because within the fine print, he was doing exactly what he said he was going to do. We were only upset because we were using it without reading that fine print. I I tell you what, what started me down this rabbit trail of thinking was I had to update the iPad earlier uh, this week, and I'm like, you know, I just want to take a little time and read that fine print. I just wonder what's in that user agreement. Um, It's a lot of interesting stuff, but it doesn't really matter. But it really did get me to thinking a lot about this. I wonder how many people here really understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, the thing is, Jesus didn't give us any fine print. There are no gotchas in, in the gospel. He lays out very clearly in Scripture what it means to follow him. But my greatest concern is week after week, I get to stand before people and proclaim what God's Word says. And the one thought that runs through my mind over and over and over is this. How many people think they're okay with God but they're not. How many people really don't understand what Jesus said when he said, follow me? See, I, I'm not trying to get hard on anybody. I don't want to beat anybody over the head. It's not my job. But I want us to understand what it means to follow Jesus because Scripture wants us to know that we're in a right relationship with God, that we have the presence of God in our lives, and that we are prepared to stand before God on that day when our life is, is over. And so we want to examine over these next uh, about five to six weeks now, we want to examine what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And in fact, the, the one big thing this morning, if you get nothing else out of this, The one thing I want you to walk away with is this, that a call to be a disciple is a call to die to yourself. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's examine it together. Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to go ahead and start back in verse 21. I'm going to ask if you're able, would you stand 
as we honor God's word. And we'll go to verse 26. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and to simply understand what it means to be your disciple. And now, God, I pray that I would get out of your way. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing is the call to follow Jesus is a call to die to yourself. Now, what we want to begin by doing is understanding the call of being a disciple. Being a disciple, as you see on your outline, is this. It is a call to everyone. Look at the opening phrase of verse 23. He says, if any man will come after me. This, is, this language indicates that salvation is available to all people. It's language that is uh, common in the New Testament, such as John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or over in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, he said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what we see in this universal language is the invitation to be saved is open and available to all That is, regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been, salvation is available to you. One of the biggest objections that people have uh, when when we talk about the gospel is this. They're afraid that I've done too much. I've gone too far. I've sinned too much that God could never love me. They, they think that, well, you know, God can probably love most people, but he can't love me. And we hear this over and over, and I don't want to downplay our sin. Okay, our sin is so offensive to a holy God that only the blood of the Son of God could satisfy the wrath that we created. So I don't ever want to downplay and say, ah, sin's not a big deal. It's a tremendously big deal. But I also don't want anybody sitting here thinking that you are beyond the grace of God. See, the very end of Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says this, that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. That is that you cannot out the grace of God. That it doesn't matter what you've done in life, that there's no sin that you have committed that the grace of God cannot fully and freely forgive you. This is the good news of the gospel. 
that no one is beyond the reach of God until they've taken their last breath. But now let's go on the flip side. See, some of you have gone down some dark roads like I have, and, and you understand the, the grace of God. Now, some of you are kind of similar to my wife. All right, I love my wife, but she will admit herself that growing up, she was a goody two-shoes. Okay? She always wanted to obey mom and dad. She didn't like anybody mad at her. She was not a rebellious type. And this is exactly what she would say to you because it's what Scripture says to us. There is no one here that is so good that they do not need the grace of God to save them from their sin. So you can't be bad enough that God will not save you if you come to Him in the way Scripture commands you to. But there's nobody here so good that they don't need that grace of God to save them. And so Jesus' invitation to you today is this. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to do enough good works to be able to get into heaven. Stop believing the lies of Satan that God cannot love you or that he won't forgive you. And simply come and rest and trust in his grace and his grace alone. This invitation is available to everyone. But it's not automatic. You see, there's a false teaching out there that says, in the end, everybody goes to heaven. It's a false teaching that needs to be rejected because it's clearly refuted in Scripture. So while the invitation is universal, the application is only to those that come to Jesus in the way that he has prescribed us to come. The way that we'll put it is that Jesus has expectations of those who will come to him. Now what are those expectations? Well, let's spend the rest of our time breaking down verse 23 there in Luke 9. So the first expectation of Jesus' disciple is this, to practice self-denial. Look at what Jesus says. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That is, we are to die to ourselves. We are to relinquish all control of our life to Jesus. He is to be the one who is calling the shots in our life. Another false teaching that is very prominent right now is this, that Jesus will be your savior, but being Lord is optional. To quote the late Dr. Adrian Rogers, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Fact of the matter, for you to say that Jesus is my savior, to call him the Messiah is to say that Jesus is king. And in a king doesn't do the will of the servants. Rather, it is the servants that do the will of the king. And, and so we have to understand, you know, that there's a lot of books out there right now that are passing themselves off as Christian, but they're nothing more than glorified self-help. And, and, and there's one that's just come out. It, it's a follow-up to another book. 
Uh, and the, the title, uh, the, the author is Rachel Hollis. You've probably heard about the book, Girl, Wash Your Face, and there's, there's a new one. And I understand I'm about to really wreck some of you. It's okay, we'll talk. But these books are nothing more than glorified self-help. The, the premise of the book is that the answer lies within yourself. That you chase after your dreams. That you're the only one that can keep you from accomplishing what you want. And I want you to hear this. Not just ladies, but guys as well. The, that is the exact opposite of what Jesus teaches. Jesus never taught us that the answer lies within us. He never taught us to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps or to try harder. He didn't say, go after your dreams. He says, die to yourself. He says, give up all control of your life to me. Let me lead you and guide you where you go. And so I want to say this. I encourage you to read books. Just make sure that whatever we're reading, we funnel through Scripture. Because we're told to deny ourselves, not try to accomplish ourselves. As I said this morning, there's two types of people here this morning. There are those who are trying to build their kingdom or those who are participating in the building of God's kingdom. It's not about us. It's about who Jesus is. You see, there's a a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is temporary, and it's based on our circumstances. But joy, as the author of joy, the eternal God... Joy is eternal, and it's not based on our circumstances. Joy says that no matter what happens to me in this life, it's okay because I'm a child of God. And so if I wake up tomorrow morning, I win. If I close my eyes in death, I still win. Why? Because God is the one who is my Savior. He's in control. It's joy that led Horatio Spafford to write the words and pen the words of probably one of the most beloved hymns in all of Christianity, It Is Well With My Soul. Listen to these words that Spafford wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his blood for my soul. Now, a lot of you know the history of that hymn. Uh, Maybe you you have forgotten, and some of you don't know the history of that hymn. So let me just give you a quick history lesson. Spafford wrote that hymn as he was sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, he wasn't sailing on vacation, though that was the original plan. He and his family were to go on vacation, but some last-minute business came up, and so he had to stay behind. But his wife and his children went ahead, and and they boarded the ship. And as they were going across the Atlantic headed to Europe, the ship sank. And some of Spafford's children died as a result. And so as his wife and remaining children are 
rescued and, and taken over to Europe, she sends a telegram back over to him to tell him what's happened. And so, of course, he gets on the next available ship and he starts sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. He is devastated with, with grief, desperately trying to get to his wife and to comfort her. This is the backdrop of those words that we just read. And when tragedy strikes, we're often wondering, how can somebody have joy? How can somebody write words that beautiful? That whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. How can somebody have that joy? Well, Spafford actually explains it in verse 3 of that hymn. Here's verse 3. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. How could Spafford have joy in the middle of tragedy? Because he knew he was a child of God, that his sins had been dealt with, that God was with him, that God was with his wife, and that God was going to get him through this trying time. You see, without a relationship with Jesus, we will be void of this joy. We will be subject to our circumstances. So sometimes life is going to be good, and sometimes life isn't going to be good. If we want to be able to face these uncertain days, we have to ground ourselves in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to do that requires us to die to ourselves. The second thing that a disciple ought to live is this, to submit to God's will. Look at the next phrase in verse 23. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. To take up your cross is to bear the full weight of loving God. So let me ask you a question. Is there anything that you could go through in life that would make you say, God, I'm done? Anything that would make you love God less than what you do right now? See, taking up your cross means going, Lord, whatever your will is for my life, I'm going to love you and I'm going to follow you. Whatever it costs, there's not a price that is too high that I am not willing to pay because of what you did on my behalf. I'm fully submitting myself to you, Lord. Whatever, wherever. Now these first two phrases of denying yourself and taking up your cross is literally what it means to repent of your sins. And repentance is so important that Jesus says in Luke 13 that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So we need to understand what does it mean to repent of something? Well, literally put, it means to turn. It means to turn from going our way, trying to accomplish our will, our desires. It means turning from trusting in myself to be good enough or to do enough good and to turn in all my faith, all my trust in what Jesus did on the cross for me. 
To repent means I no longer trust me. That all my faith, all my hope, all my trust is laid at who Jesus is. This is why the hymnist wrote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so I would ask you the question this morning, who are you trusting? What are you trusting? If I was to ask you, do you believe in heaven? My guess is 100% of people are going, yep. If I was to ask you, how does a person go there? My guess is probably at least some would say, well, you got to be a good person or you got to do good things. You got to go to church, got to do all these things. And to you, I want to say this, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, there's no chance I can ever be good enough. There's no chance that we could ever do enough good works in which God would allow us into heaven. It is purely by his grace that we can be saved. So our trust is not in who we are. It's not in what we do. Our trust and assurance for heaven is based on what Jesus has done on our behalf. A true disciple of Jesus will be as Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane the night he was betrayed. He's praying there and three times he prays, not my will, but your will be done. A true disciple says, it's not about me, it's about you. A true disciple says, it's not my glory I seek, it's your glory I seek. In fact, man, this is how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? And if you were to go into Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, he teaches us to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so part of our lives, part of our prayer time ought to be, Lord, help me to know what your will is and then to do it. This is what it means to follow Christ. And then there's a third expectation in this verse. Look at the very end of it. It says, and follow me. It's to be obedient. Jesus would ask this question in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I command you to do? See, if there's something that an American church needs to come to grips with, it's this. That the idea that all we have to do is walk an aisle, say a prayer, sign a card, and then we get into heaven. We've, we've got to get away from this idea. Because it's foreign to Scripture. The, the, the idea that all I have to do is, is say something and then I can live however I want is foreign to the New Testament. See, a, a disciple was a learner of their master for the purpose of imitating their master. So what Jesus did is what we are called to do. And it's more than just saying words. It's a life that we live. This goes back to last week. Discipleship isn't a class I attend, it's a lifestyle that I live. That my life ought to be reflecting Jesus to the world. This invitation that, that Jesus gives of follow me, 
was the same that he gave to Peter in Luke 5. It's the same invitation that he said in John 21. And it's the same invitation that he has given to us today. Follow me. We are saved by grace, not of our works. But we do works to show that we have been saved by grace. We have to be obedient to the teachings of Scripture. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is, well, one time I said a prayer, then we've got problems. Because Jesus said you're going to know them by the fruits. We're going to have to walk after him. We're going to have to obey him. And if we're not willing to obey the basic commands of Scripture, then we need to stop calling ourselves a Christian. So what does that mean? How do we live this out? I want to give you just a few things very quickly. First, I would say we need to count the cost. If you were to flip in the, towards the end of Luke chapter 9, you would see three statements that Jesus makes about being a disciple. In verses 57 to 58, we learn that following Jesus means we are to love him more than we love the pleasures and comforts of this life. That we'd be willing to give up everything we've got as long as we have Jesus. We would learn in verses 59 and 60 that being a disciple of Jesus means that we love Jesus more than we love anyone else. Other places in Scripture... Jesus would put it this way, if you don't love me so much that it looks like you hate everybody else, you're not really my disciple. We would rather obey Jesus than please our spouse or do things for our kids. It's what it means to love Jesus more. Then verses 61 and 62, we see that being a disciple of Jesus means that we are to leave our old way of life behind. That is, we are to bury it. We don't want to put a grave marker up because we don't want to go visit it, and we don't want to take a shovel because we don't want to dig it back up. You see, church, we cannot be a disciple who loves Jesus on Sunday and then lives for the devil Monday to Saturday. We're either all in or we're all out. We're either walking in obedience or we're not. The second thing I would say is this. A believer's life is about God, not them. See, for Jesus to be Lord means that he's king. The Apostle Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. What, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? That you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. We are bought with a price. That price was the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for you. Will we live for him? Will we give him full control over everything we do in life? And we do it knowing this. The last point. 
knowing that in the end, it's going to be worth it. See, as believers, in a lot of ways, we choose to delay our gratification. We go, life isn't about me, it's about pleasing God. Now, does that mean that we as Christians don't get to have any fun or don't get to enjoy life? No. I'm, I'm going to tell you, following Christ, being a disciple, is one of the greatest joys that you'll ever have. Because you have the promise of God's presence in, in your life everywhere you go. I have the joy of knowing that no matter where I go, no matter what I'm going through, that God is right there with me. He's walking beside me, and he's bringing me through it. And he is preparing me and my life for what's coming, not only tomorrow, but when, my, when I close my eyes in death. That there's nothing I can go through in this life that would make me turn my back on Jesus because when I was at my worst, God gave me his best. For this light affliction, which is temporary, Paul says, is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. In other words, the pain that I go through and the difficulties that believers go through today is nothing more than God preparing us for what he's going to do in us and preparing us to be with him for all of eternity. See, the kingdom of God isn't something that I wait for. It's what I get to experience now and then fullness then. See, the problem is for some of you, you're living for happiness. You're living for that moment. And if you're honest, that moment is fleeting. And there's something in the vast majority of every pocket or purse in here that could destroy that happiness. It's a cell phone. All it takes right now is one text. One phone call. And that happiness that you are feeling will be gone. It's one doctor's visit. It's one loss of a job. It's one fight with a spouse. It's one child that is running as hard and far away from you as possible that can completely shatter that happiness. But for the child of God... Those circumstances in any other circumstance cannot shatter our joy because only Jesus gives us joy. Only Jesus is our joy. See, if you're chasing after relationships, guys, if you're chasing after a girl, girls, you're chasing after a guy, if you're chasing after that next promotion, you're chasing after that next car, house, boat, you're chasing after that promotion, that whatever, you might get it, and you might be happy for a moment. But if your identity isn't in who God says you are, it's going to come flying down. It's just going to crumble under you one day. And I say that as somebody that at past times have chased after those things only to have them fall out from under me. Why am I passionate about what I'm talking to you? Because the only person who has never let me down has been Jesus. 
The only person that has given me calm and peace and assurance is Jesus. I love my wife. I don't live for my wife. I live for Jesus. I love my kids. Man, God has blessed me with four awesome kids. They're not my life. Jesus is. I got a great church family. Man, I'd love to be able to tell you about some of the awesome things I've seen in the last month. I don't live for them. I live for Jesus. That's joy. It's not happiness. Now, joy doesn't mean that you're not going to have heartache in life. There's not a single person in here that won't go through trying times. We as a church family have had two funerals in three weeks. We've had countless others in the hospital going through various other things. So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you following Jesus is going to give you a life on easy street. I'm just saying you got somebody to walk with you through the fires. Somebody that's going to bring you through those flood waters. Somebody who's never going to leave you or forsake you. So I want to end our time together by asking you two questions. One is a question that Jesus posed in the end of our text. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This is the way I'm going to ask it. Is what you're living for today worth dying and spending an eternity in hell for? And why are you living for it? Would you stand with me as we're going to pray together? Father, as we continue to spend time in worship together, Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. It's your love and your grace that has sustained us and brought us to the place that we are. It's your grace that has forgiven many in this room and desires to forgive everyone in this room. And not just everyone in this sanctuary, but everyone around the world. But Father, your word is very clear that those who are coming to you must come in the only way possible. And that is in faith 